Well, I return you this morning to uh, John chapter 3, so take that Bible that you hopefully brought, because we will be all over the Scripture in the Gospel of John, and you'll need to keep those fingers ready. But we're looking, and let me go ahead and read for you that section in John 3, 22 down through 36. And last week we covered 22 through 30, and then this week we'll look at particularly 331 through 36 and finish this third chapter. But follow along as I read from the ESV beginning at John 3:22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given for him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, what a wonderful privilege to be here this morning and open your authentic, authoritative word, Father, that bears truth in all places and all parts and speaks to our hearts. And Father, we would pray that Christ would be seen that the supremacy of Jesus Christ would be clearly understood. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might be faithful to the understanding of this passage, Father, and the choice that it brings each to. So, Lord, to this end, we give thanks in your name. Amen. Well, we left off at verse 30, that wonderful statement, he must increase... And it says there, but I, John speaking, the Baptist, must decrease. And certainly when you look at chapter 3, verse 30, and that statement, it is probably one of the greatest transition passages of the Old Testament. Because I think in many ways, in that statement, Jesus inaugurates a new kingdom. John, as we sometimes refer to him, though you find him in the New Testament, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he will usher in the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's his prayer. That's his passion. That's his heart that Jesus must increase and he must 
decrease. In fact, when you look at John the Baptist's entire life, his joy was in fulfilling God's will for his life. That's what he wanted. And he becomes, does he not, a model for us in our life of what the Christian life ought to look like and what your marriage ought to look like and your home ought to look like. I think of Paul and the example he as well when he stated his relationship to Christ, said in Acts 20, 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. He said, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of grace. Acts 20, 24, just his life, as he said, he didn't account, you know, as dear to himself. He wanted to finish the course that the Lord had gave him. Of course, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, you know well that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who, what? Lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in him. That is that heart of John the Baptist when he said he must increase, I must decrease. Paul also said of that relationship with Christ, speaking to you and to the Colossians, he said, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. And then he said, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the refrain of our life. He must increase. I must decrease. Paul, in fact, said in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he, speaking of Christ, died for all, that those who live, here's the phrase, might no longer live for themselves, but for him uh, who for their sake died and was raised. There it is. We no longer live for ourselves, And so John, as he came to the end of that testimony, when his disciples said that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than you, his refrain was, listen, God's sovereign in the way he gives the gifts. And then he said that he always must increase in the person of Christ and I must decrease. John saw himself only as the friend of the bridegroom to usher in who the important one. And in this passage... It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I've titled this message, The Supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it runs from 331 down through 36. Now there's a big question here amongst uh, some commentators. As you walk into 31, if you look back at 30, you're just reading it with me. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then 31 says he comes from above all, or from above and isn't above all. There's some question as to who the writer is here at this point. Uh, I just point this out to you for free. You think, well, of course, we're reading John's gospel. It's, it's John the Apostle. And some people think that John the Apostle picks up now, after that statement by John the Baptist in 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease, then John the Apostle adds his editorial comments there. But we have no uh, break in the sequence here. There's no quotation marks in the Greek language. And, and I just tend to think that as John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I think John the Baptist just continues his thought there. 
So as we come to this text, I just see it as John the Baptist running all the way to the end, that as John the Baptist said the statements in his testimony in 22 through 30, he continues now in 31 through 36. So I think it's best to see it as a further description of the Baptist. Now, now what's the angle that he takes here in the Word of God? The, the passage simply but profoundly explains why Jesus is superior to all. In other words, John the Baptist, now under the inspiration of the Spirit, and by the way, it doesn't really matter if it's the Baptist or John the Apostle, does it? It's the Word of God. We can't be sure exactly who it is, but it really doesn't matter. But I believe here, the best way to see it is John is explaining the statement in 3.30, John the Baptist. Why is Jesus superior over all? Or we can say it this way. He is answering or giving the reason why Jesus must increase and why John himself must decrease. So as we walk into this passage, there are four compelling features that establish the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all. Okay? Four compelling features out of the text that established the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all. And in this statement, in this passage, there is just a rich, rich Christology, a theology of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you think of Christ, there's so many pictures that come to your mind, especially out of John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But when you look in the greater parts of the New Testament, and certainly the Gospel of John, Our understanding of Christ as a church needs to grow. The Christology of Christ is all through the Gospels, and John in particular is so rich in what we call his Christology. But let's dive into the text. The first compelling feature of the supremacy of Jesus is this, is he comes from above, okay? He comes from above. Look down again at the text now in 331 and we'll pick it up. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. And so here's that first compelling feature. Jesus is from above. Beloved, it just makes him utterly unique. If you glance back in your Bible at 3.13, it says there that no one has ascended into heaven. It says, except he who descended from heaven. In other words, when you think of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, he comes from above. He comes from, if you will, that reign in perfect in perfection with his Father. That one who was in perfect fellowship and communion with the Father. The one who has no beginning. The one who has no end. In fact, it's fair to say this, that Jesus alone comes from above down to us. In other words, Jesus Christ has heavenly origin. The Lord Jesus Christ here in this statement is from above and deserving of all praise and deserving of all honor. In fact, it's this even phrase that he comes from above that really bothered the Jewish people. Look over just a couple chapters in chapter 6 
in verse 41. This, this bothered them because the Jews in 641 grumbled about him because of a statement that he had previously made. But look what it says. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In other words, he is that manna, if you will, that came down from heaven. And they said, is this, it's not this Jesus, the son of Joseph in 642, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, that's the testimony of Scripture. And beloved, as you link these Scriptures in 330, he must increase. John the Baptist says, I must decrease for the profound reason is that Jesus is the supreme messenger from God. In other words, according to the Scripture, he is in a league all of his own. There is none like him. In fact, if you look back, go back to John chapter 1, you have those magnificent statements. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. What a grand statement. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. In other words, when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, you would look at His supremacy. When you look at His greatness, He is great for this reason, that He comes from above. In fact, look down in chapter 1, verse 14, where it says there that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, that one who lived in heavenly origin, had no origin, if you will, but heavenly enterprise. He was there from all time with God the Father and God the Spirit. He became flesh. Look over to chapter 1, verse 18. What a grand statement that no one has ever seen God. Okay, the only God who is at his father's side. I love this phrase. He has made him known. Uh, Jesus Christ makes known God the father. He alone can give us facts about God, beloved. He alone can tell us about the gospel. He alone is the one that comes from above. I mean, just frankly with you, where's Muhammad come from? Just comes from the desert. Buddha. He comes from a wealthy Chinese family. Every other religion has some kind of earthly origin. Jesus is the only one. In fact, it's the only one bold enough to say that he comes from above. And so look what John says, even in his own earthly contrast. Go back to 331. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. And he speaks, John says, in an earthly way. All John the Baptist is saying is, yes, he was sent from God, that we know. But he belonged to the earth. And he comes from the earth. John the Baptist speaks in an earthly way. John the Baptist has an earthly origin. John the Baptist has an earthly character. So even though he was sent by God, he is not the supreme one who had no origin and no beginning. So John the Baptist says he must increase, I must decrease for the profound reason that Jesus alone comes from above. And look at that last phrase in verse 31. 
it says that he comes from heaven is he who comes from heaven is above all. He's above all. And so it should be even in our earthly life now that if he comes from above and he's supreme over all, our entire life ought to be given in devotion to him that he, Colossians says in 1.18, might have first place in everything, first place in our business, first place in our homes, first place in our marriage because he comes from above. But not only does he come from above, but secondly, the second compelling feature of the supremacy of Jesus is that he discloses the Father to us. He discloses the Father to us. Look at verse 32. It's amazing. It says, speaking about that one who comes from above, 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Stop there just for a second. Jesus speaks of the things, and I don't know if we've, if you ever looked at something like this, he speaks of the things that he has seen and heard from the Father. In other words, within John's theology, there is an incredible intimacy, if you will, of the Father and the Son. And as I mentioned, the Christology is rich. In fact, frankly, it's even mind-blowing. Now, you remember that we already said, when we think about disclosing the Father, that John 1.18 says, speaking of Christ, that he has made him known. In other words, you know God the Father because he, the person of Christ, in his incarnation, has made him known. In fact, look down again at verse 32, where it says that he bears, and he uses this frame, Phrase, witness. It's the ideal of a testimony. Sometimes when people um, are caught or they're asked to give testimony, some people don't want to give testimony for fear of their life, for fear of the testimony given. But listen, when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a testimony. He is a witness. Verse 32, he's a willing witness and testimony of what he has seen and heard. In other words, beloved, Jesus speaks of this intimacy that he had with God. Look over to John chapter 8. Let me just, we're going to be moving a lot, but I, and we'll come back to these as we go in our exposition. But in John chapter 8, I want to just take you to a number of statements where he, he states this emphatically. But it says in verse 38, Jesus speaking, 838, I speak of what I have seen with my father. Stop there. When Jesus speaks, he speaks there of what he has seen with my father. He is the one who existed from all time. He is the one who was with God and was God. When he speaks, beloved, he speaks and discloses the father because he speaks the things here that he has heard and told you, or he tells us, from the Father. Look at John chapter 8. Excuse me, go over to John, um, where is that one? Um, Yeah, even if you look down at 840, we looked at 838, but 840, but he's, he's telling the Jewish people, now you seek to kill me. Watch this. A man who has told you the truth, 
that I heard from who? God. I mean, there's a little bit of holy ground here. Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is a teacher. No, he is that. He's more. What he speaks, he speaks truth. He utters truth that he got from God the Father. Look over at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Just tracing this so you don't think, I mean, Jesus is on some renegade mission. That's not what the text says at all. He says this to us as his friends. Remember that passage in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the, servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. He says, but I've called you friends for all that I heard from my father, I have made what? Known to you. I've made known to you. In other words, for John, he is supreme over all because he comes from above. But beloved, he's disclosing, if you will, God the Father to you. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. But look back at John chapter 3. It's amazing that he does that. And then this statement comes in in 332, that he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. In other words, Nicodemus didn't receive his testimony in 311, and John the Baptist just says no one receives his testimony. I think he's speaking a little bit hyperbole there, because he says in verse 32, no one receives his testimony, but then he turns right around in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony, so forth. So there's a little bit of hyperbole there, that he came into his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as do receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. But as he comes into this world from above and discloses the Father to us, many do not receive him. But but look down now in the text. It says this in verse 34. He said, for he, John the Baptist speaking, right? He whom, speaking now of Jesus, God has sent, verse 34 says, utters the words of God. And I don't have to take you into the whole theology of sent. 23 different times in John's gospel, God the Father sent the Son. But here, just watch this in 34, that he whom he sent utters the words of God. In other words, the words of Jesus are the very words of God. To hear him is to hear God. I mean, that is quite a bold statement there, that he utters the words of God. Look over at John chapter 6 for a moment in 63. Touching on these there, where here we have a statement in 663. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help, Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, his very words, his utterances, his very words in 663 are spirit and they are life. Look over at John just down the page at 668 when Simon Peter answered, when he asked him in 667, do you want to go away? 
Peter answered him in 668 and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have, he said, the words of eternal life. In other words, he speaks for God. He is God. He has the words of eternal life. Look over at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Somewhat of a frightening passage. But in John chapter 12, in verse 47, our Lord speaking, he says there, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And what is it? Here it is. The word that I have spoken will, be a, will judge him on the last day. Wow. The very words of Christ will be the unbeliever's judgment on that last day. In fact, glance down at chapter 12 in verse 49. Have you seen it this way before? For I, Jesus said, have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what? What to speak. In other words, he only speaks what his Father gave him, if you will, the authority to do so. In other words, he discloses the Father to us. If you want to understand God the Father, then look within the printed pages of Scripture. Look to the words of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think it's kind of odd, frankly, a little bit today, that so many people are looking for an experience. They're casting dreams. They're having a vision. I see so many ministries that... People say God is doing this and this movement and I have this dream and I have this vision and I want to tell you what the Father is teaching me. I I understand that to a degree, but listen, beloved, if you want to know directly from God the Father, then he, he has conveyed his heart, his will, his testimony and his commands in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Look over at John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. Where it says there in chapter 17 in verse 8, he says, For I have, Jesus is right in that priestly prayer, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I love that phrase. I have given them the words that you gave me. Listen, beloved, this is just a rich Christology. Jesus is telling you that he himself, John the Baptist's testimony, discloses, if you will, the Father's will to us. To hear Jesus is to hear God. In fact, what's amazing about this Christology is that Jesus completely says and does all that God says and does. In other words, there is a constant affirmation in John's gospel regarding the unity of the Father and the Son. In fact, look back at John chapter 14. The disciples needed to be reminded of this unity. And do you remember as I go to John chapter 14, he is speaking there of the way, the truth, and the life. And do you remember that Philip said to him in 14.8, show us the 
Father, and it is enough for us. Remember Jesus said in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the what? Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now watch this. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. What a, what a great statement there. What a great statement. In other words, as it so clearly says, I do not speak on my own authority. It's the Father who is speaking through me. Look back at John chapter 5 just for a moment. In John chapter 5, here is that great relationship scene. In 519, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing, and whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Credible statement. In other words, he does and says only what the Father does and says. What a, what a tremendous testimony. Look at 520. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In fact, glance down at 21. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life. So also, the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 22, the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. In fact, glance down at verse 26 there of chapter 5. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. He The Father has given him, Christ, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And you have all these statements of this incredible intimacy between the Father and the Son. That's why I just think I respond, you know, I I, I respond with incredulousness when you think that, that people say all religions are the same, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or some other guy. No, beloved, listen. Jesus is utterly supreme. Jesus is utterly unique. If you want to know God, then only Jesus comes from above and discloses the Father to us. Now watch this. Not, not all reject him. Look, back at five, look at back at 333. He, he says there, in 32 at the end, he says, no one receives his testimony, but in 5, excuse me, 333, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Amazing statement. Those who trust Christ seal the testimony of Christ to the truthfulness of God. In other words, when you believe in Christ, you attest to the fact that God and His Word are true. They're so interrelated. And in fact, he uses that phrase there, sets, and you'll notice this, it says, His seal to this. In the ancient world, when a man wanted to attest to the full approval of a document uh, or any kind of important paper, he would often give his seal, and his seal would authenticate that document as true. 
In fact, a seal would be actually a distinguishing mark. In fact, often what they would do is they would have rings on their hand and there was kind of a seal at the end of that ring and they would take that signet ring, they often called it, and put it in wax, whether they went like this or with their hand or put that ring in there. They would take that hot wax and then they would attach that, that seal to that document that it was signed and sealed by that authoritative figure. And here what John the Baptist is saying is when you trusted Christ, you affirmed and attested to what God says as true. So here in John's theology, the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease for the profound reason that he discloses the Father to us. And again, I would just say to us, listen, if we want to know God the Father, if you want to have communion with God the Father, if you want to understand God, if you want to be a man that knows God, a woman that knows God, then look into the Scripture because we have a God who speaks. We have a God who has spoken. We have a God who has spoken in the person of Christ and the prophets that have come. And I just think we live in a day, it seems like, where so many people are looking for a vision, looking for a dream, looking for a movement, and they bypass what's already been revealed. In fact, frankly, sometimes I think some authors think they have an inside track to God in their own relationship. When I'm reading right here, if you want the inside track, go to Jesus Christ. Amen? Go straight to Christ. He's disclosing the Father's will to you. And they're so tight. They're so intimate. There's perfect fellowship and unity. Sin has never marred that relationship. And Jesus says, I am speaking of that which I have seen and that which I have heard from all time forever in perfect community. He comes down to us and he discloses who God the Father is. And so this is just very, very important Christology. I even think about the the boy who went to heaven. A million dollar seller. Really, you're going to tell me a little boy has more to say about heaven than this book? I think about people who who say all the time in their devotions, God speaks to me. And I feel like saying, well, aren't you special? Listen, you want to know if God's speaking to you? Look in his word. He is, he's he's there. He's not a, a, a sidebar witness. He is of the Trinity and has been with the Father and he's disclosing everything the Father gave to him by the Father's authority. And we have that in the person of Christ. Well, there's a third compelling reason of the supremacy of Christ. don't know if you've seen this before. It's in 334. Is this, is he has the spirit without measure. He has the spirit without measure. Do you see that in 34? For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, as we said. Now watch this. For he gives the spirit without measure. I take that to be that he whom God has sent utters the word, and he who gives the Father, the Spirit, he gave him to Christ without measure. Now, you know, part of it, you, you say here's the flow of what we call the, the text here, is, is, it, is it would go something like this. Okay, he comes from above, okay? We, we get that, sort of, as best as we understand that, right? He is divine. But secondly, he discloses the Father's will, and then John the Baptist is now going to take you to this third credential, and I, or this third compelling reason, and I just kind of call it the, that he gives the, the Spirit, but it's the credentials of Christ to speak in the way that he 
has spoken. If you went to a doctor, I had to go into a doctor this week, my doctor, and uh, he, he, you know, usually if you go into a doctor or a dentist or sometimes a pastor, uh, they put their credentials in the wall, right? He graduated from so-and-so. This is where his doctor is from. This is where he went to school. This is where he was trained in this. The credentials sometimes hang on the wall to verify the truth that that particular man or woman is a doctor and they have the authority to treat you. Well, very well here, one of the credentials, one that Christ has, is that God the Father, in a very unique way, on the person of Christ, has given him the spirit without measure. Now, beloved, we don't have to go into that in the Old Testament. You remember where the, the, the Spirit would come upon men, it would come upon women, and it would usually come upon men and women for a special task and a special purpose. And then once that task was done, they no longer needed that endowment of the Spirit. God would give them that endowment, sometimes in various amounts, to accomplish a task. But listen, beloved, the reason that he must increase, John says, and I must decrease, is for the profound reason that within the supremacy of Jesus Christ, he has been given the Spirit without measure. In other words, there's no limit to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the uniqueness here is, go back to John chapter 1. You have statements in the Word of God like this. Remember when John was sending his disciples to Christ and saying, Behold the Lamb of God, so forth, in 129. In 132, John says, He bore witness, I saw the Spirit, you know this phrase, descend from heaven like a dove. And then here's the key one. And it what? It remained on him. In other words, this is different. He's not just empowered for the task that he was, but when Jesus was given that third part of the Trinity, the Spirit, it came upon him, beloved, and it remained on him. Look at chapter 1, verse 33. He said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he whom the Spirit, uh, he whom you see the Spirit descend and what? remain this is he who baptizes with the spirits and there's testimony beloved of the old testament the spirit of the lord in isaiah eleven two shall rest upon him in other words not just for the task it's remaining on him and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him. And it says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So he was uniquely endowed, if you will, with the fullness of the spirit of God, which, beloved, by the way, uh, we ought to be looking for Christ and his fullness rather than some of the shenanigans that we see on TV today, which frankly appear to be to be a little bit more demonic than spirit-led. When you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was given the spirit without measure, and it remained on him. And that spirit, if you will, gave him wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah put it this way in 42.1, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. God said in 42.1, I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 61.1 says that the spirit 
of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Do you remember that? To preach the gospel. Do you remember that was fulfilled when Jesus went in and read Isaiah 61 and he closed the book and he said, today this has been what? Fulfilled in your presence. But I like that. The Spirit of God is upon me. It is in the fullness of the Spirit that we see Christ. Listen, we need to look to Christ. And as a church, that's what we're going to do. I see so many people in so many ministries and so many churches get off by looking for something of the Spirit rather than finding Christ in the book and growing in the richness of Christ who has and was endowed with the fullness of Spirit without measure. So listen, the fourth and final compelling feature of the supremacy of Jesus Christ is that he has been given all things. He has been given all things. Look back to verse 35. This is why he must increase, I must decrease, because he has been given all things. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, before we get to what he's given into his hand, it says that he loves the Son. I don't know if we talk about that enough. He loves you. He loves the world, but within the Trinitarian person, if you will, the Father loves the Son. And of course, when we unpack that earlier in John 3, we notice that there were five distinguishing kinds of love in the Scripture. And one of those distinguishing loves was the perfect love of the Father for the Son. In other words, we don't share that love. It is the love that God the Father has for God the Son where sin has never marred that. But look at that. It it says it right there in 35. The Father loves the Son. Look over at chapter 5 just for a moment. In John chapter 5, it says that there in 520 that the Father loves the Son and He shows Him All that he himself is doing. I like that. He loves the son. There's a relationship there. Look, just glance over at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Look over there and you'll see that statement. It's not just mentioned one time. In John chapter 10 verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me. Christ knew that. Because I lay my life down and... Take it up again. Look over at John chapter 15. John chapter 15 in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father loves me. It's all over the scripture. Look over at John chapter 17. John 17 and in verse 23 In that great priestly prayer, I in them, Jesus says, he's praying, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. And what a a profound statement. Verse 24, Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me that where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Look at 1726. 
I have made, ne- made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen, and it is because of this love and because that he comes from above and because the, he discloses the Father to us and because he's given Jesus the Spirit without measure that he has, look back now in John chapter 3 and verse 35, given all things into his hand. He's given all things into his hand, or he's given all things over to the Son. Listen, beloved, I don't know if I could just convey that. There is such a rich Christology there between the Father and the Son that the Father has given everything to the Son. So when people say there's many different ways to God, no, there's not. In fact, I read this week on an article, again, I mentioned last week, a couple weeks ago, that that woman, professor of Bible at Wheaton College, that was wearing her Muslim dress, her hijab, is that how you say it? And basically said, I'm wearing this in honor of my Muslim friends. After all, quote, we all worship the same God. And you would think that there would be complete rebuttal. They suspended her from her post at this point until they put her through the teaching process. But I read this week that uh, there was a whole case of teachers at Wheaton College that have risen up now to protect her and to protect the freedom of speech so that she can continue as a Bible professor at Wheaton College. Listen, we can talk all we want, but but God the Father is revealing himself to his son, not Muhammad. And he's revealing himself to his son whom he has given over all things to him. Listen, I can't give you human language to speak how great he is. I can't find words deep enough in my heart to tell you how exalted Christ is, to tell you how great he is, to tell you how supreme he is, because he's beyond my description. But this is unbelievable. He's given all things to him is what the word says. Look over at John chapter 5 again in verse 20. And I'm pointing out here the giving of all things. 520, for the father, as we mentioned, loves the son. But here's the phrase. He shows him all that he's doing. You want to know what God the Father's doing? Look to the son. He's revealed that to him. He's disclosed that to him. Look over at John chapter 5, just maybe the same page, verse 27. He, God the Father, 527, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Man, What a staggering day that's going to be when Paul said in Philippians that every knee shall, what? Wow, listen, I'm not talking to you about an option this morning. I'm not talking to you about many of the many ways to God. I'm telling you about the only way to God. And here in this case, he's even given judgment over to the son to execute that judgment because the text said so clearly he's given authority to execute that judgment. In other words, he's given that to him. In fact, look over at John chapter 6 and verse 37. This is an amazing text, and if you can... We'll get there. I don't want to take all of our thunder away, but all, 637, have you ever seen this? All that the Father gives me 
will what? Come to me. Now watch this. And whoever comes to me, I will never what? Cast out. In, in other words, the father has not only given the son the ability to execute judgment, but preciously, is that a word, preciously? In 637, all that the father gives to me will come to me. In other words, God the father gave to God the son, his son, a love gift. And that love gift was you. So if you can fathom in the mind of eternity, God the Father had you in mind before this world was created. And God the Father chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And all, verse 37, that the Father gives to Jesus will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Amazing scripture. Look at verse 38. He said, for I have come down, there's that phrase again, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Watch this. That I should lose nothing of all that he has, what? Given me. Listen, if you're struggling, I'm smiling. You can't lose your salvation. If, if, you, if you battle with that, All that the Father has given me, it says there in verse 40, or in verse uh, 39, or whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose what? Nothing. You can't be lost. You can't be in Christ and be out of Christ. You can't get saved one week, then not be saved the next week. You have been given as a gift from God the Father to God the Son in eternity past. And whatever God the Father gave to the Son, he will never lose anything. In fact, Jesus said that no one will be able to snatch you out of my what? Hand. That is how assured your salvation is. So I'm just highlighting there that he gave the Son the ability to execute judgment, but he gives to the Son a love gift, and the love gift is you, and you came to him before the foundation of the world. He had his mind and heart on you. In fact, look over at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. It says there, in, uh, it says Jesus knowing, 13.3, that the Father had given, what? All things into his hand all things look over at john 17 john 17 in verse 3 he says and this is eternal life that you may that they may know the only true god in jesus christ whom you have sent and then he says i jesus in 17 4 glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you what Gave me to do. God the Father gave his son work to do. Works of miracles. Works of compassion. Works of kindness. And supremely he gave the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross. All of those are the things that because the Father loves the son. He's given all things into his hands. So listen. Here are the four identifying features, compelling features, that establish the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all and make him above all. He is superior because he comes from above. Secondly, he discloses the Father. Thirdly, he has the Spirit without measure. And fourthly, the Lord Jesus Christ was given all things. And then John just brings us to a grand conclusion. Would you look back now at John 3? He summarizes, does he not, in that magnificent statement in 336, whoever believes in the Son has 
eternal life. Do you get that now? That's authority. He's, the scripture is saying whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come into eternal life. You have eternal life present tense. In other words, God the Father gave God the Son the authority that as you place your faith in Him, He has the authority to grant and give eternal life. And then it says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, abides on him. And so here, He brings us really to two choices, does He not? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to know eternal life. It's interesting you caught, you caught how he said that. He, whoever does not, doesn't say believe the Son. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So that, therefore, those who believe obey. And those who do not believe choose to not believe. And they choose disobedience and don't obey the Son. And so they face the condemnation of Jesus Christ. In fact, they not only face it. Look at it again in 336. And this might be you this morning. The wrath of God remains on him. In other words, a person doesn't have to die and go to hell to face God's wrath. He who does not believe this morning, John 318 says, is condemned already. So here the verdict has been given. However, the sentence of condemnation has not yet been executed. There is mercy today. So listen, your response to the Son determines your destiny. Now listen, I don't think I'm going to have the freedom to say that one day. But your response to Jesus Christ will determine your eternal destiny. Beloved, I say to you sincerely with all my heart, you can't straddle a fence. You're either in or you're out. You're either for him or you're against him. You've either decided to believe on him or you're presently disobeying him. You cannot be neutral with Jesus Christ. But listen, praise God, he has made a way for you. His life, his death, his resurrection. And so I ask you, do you know him today? Have you come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't, then you just need to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? There's a little phrase I, I found. It's an African-American pastor. And I, and I can't say it like he would say it if you want to go look at it on YouTube. It was an older pastor. In fact, he pastored in San Diego. And he had a stanza on the person of Christ. And I just, maybe this captures a little bit about the supremacy of Christ. He said, the Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? My king, he said, is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of the world. 
He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest ideal in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager. I wonder, do you know him? He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And then he went on to say, I wish I could describe him. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hand and you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Do you know him as king? Listen, beloved, we could never think too highly enough of Christ. We could never praise him enough. And listen, I'm telling you, that one who is supreme over all, can you believe it? Died on the cross for your sins. 